Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 15. Well, the last time we finished up chapter 14 with Paul and Barnabas leaving Asia Minor and sailing back to Syria and Antioch east to report on their first missionary journey. Today we're going to start with chapter 15 with a theological dispute and we're going to see how it's ultimately resolved with a major overtone of grace. Verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So we have as Paul and Barnabas and some others go from Syrian Antioch to Jerusalem to settle this theological issue. One, should the Gentiles be required to keep Mosaic law to become Christians, to be saved? Two, can Gentiles be saved without first being required to become Jews? And that was the crux of the matter. In verse 1, we see circumcision uh, come up again, which we had discussed about before. It started with Abraham, but it was required in Mosaic law, but it was a sign of the covenant between God and the Jews in the Old Testament. I want to read, we're going to be in Galatians a lot today, so turn to Galatians it's going to be starting in chapter 5. And just kind of keep your finger there or a pen because we're going to go back and forth to Galatians. Galatians 5, starting with verse 1. Now Paul is writing to the Galatians and he explains to them the destructiveness of legalism and we're going to go into that. And the, really the difference between legalism and grace. And what does God want from us? What is the right way to follow the Lord? Verse 1, Paul says, Stand fast, fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You who have been, become estranged from Christ you attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And we know that we're saved by grace. And the vehicle that it comes to us in is faith. Through faith, we receive the grace of God and we're saved, the Bible tells us. But what happened in Galatia was men would come in and they would have itinerant type of preachers. They would come in and they would say, well, it's good what Paul told you, but all you guys who aren't circumcised, go get circumcised. And I'm sure it was a relief for them to hear that you don't have to be circumcised to be saved, especially as adults. But the point is that what they were trying to do is they were trying to hold these people in bondage to keeping Mosaic law and keeping certain standards after the freedom they received in Christ through grace. We're gonna, this is going to be a little theological today. Okay. 
Now we're in the age basically of the wineskins Jesus spoke about. New wine goes in new wineskins. Old wine is in old wineskins. If you put new wine in old wineskins, as the wine expands through the fermentation process, the wineskins will burst and all the wine will spill out. Meaning there's the old system, the old religious system, and the new system, which is under grace. And the Holy Spirit, there's a lot of things that people look at as the wine, but one of them is the Holy Spirit. You can't contain the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can't be contained in the old dead religious system. We're going to go through that. Verse 2. So Paul and Barnabas hear this. Uh, the Judaizers or the legalists come in and saying, hey, you've you know, you got to do these works. You've got to follow the law. And it says that there was no small dissension. Now, that's an archaic form of speech. It's euphemistic for it was really close probably to a brawl. They had to go meet the original disciples, the church pillars, to hammer out this doctrine as it could have caused and turned to destructive teaching. It's really important to have good doctrine as a believer. It's very important to have good doctrine. Because all the pseudo-religions, all the cults, started in some way with some person that had a new way of doing things. We know what, you, we know what Paul said. We know what you heard 1,800 years ago. But we have this new way of doing things, and you know, it's esoteric meaning that we're going to kind of pull out this, this Gnosticism. You, know, you, you see it all throughout. Jesus said these things would happen. The false teachers would rise up, and they have been. As a matter of fact, the 1800s saw a huge explosion of cults and false doctrines. So again, solid doctrine, and there's always somebody who's trying to bring in destructive teachings to try to undermine that foundation of solid doctrine. Today, many are going and seeking after seeker-friendly movements and the emergent church. It's a new way of doing things. We know it, that the whole doctrine, the Word of God, we understand that, but we want to give you feelings. We want you to feel God. We want, we want to get you to have an ambiance of God, and, and you, know, you just kind of sense Him in your, in your tingly senses. Well, I'm serious. <laughs> but, and, and that's opposed to knowing Him through prayer and the Word. Psalm 138 says this, one verse. Psalm 138. He says, For you have magnified your word above all your name. That's how high his word is honored. And Jesus said in John 5.39, when, when debating with the religious teachers, he said, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are that which testify of me. The word of God is very important. Prayer is very important. That's the way we see God. Because if it's all about feelings and ambiance, what do we do when life throws us a curveball and doesn't feel good anymore? You get saved. Somebody's teaching you it's good to feel good all the time and be happy. And like even what Heather said before, it's a farce. Nobody feels good all the time. What happens when life, again, you, hit, you get a curveball and things come out and, and you're like, well, what's this? And you don't, you don't feel good anymore. Well, I've got to tell you, the last two weeks have been brutal for me. I'm going to see a back surgeon tomorrow. I've just been having a lot of back trouble. And i got to tell you, if it was all about feelings, I would have quit a long time ago. I would have said, I'm not called to be a pastor. I don't feel good. I've been taught I should feel good. It's not about feeling good. It's about getting that foundation in the Word of God. I have that foundation. I know I'm saved. I know what God has called me to do. I know I'm going to suffer afflictions in this life. That's just part of life. But I keep moving forward because that's what God has called me to do. So be careful of those teachings. As a matter of fact, if you turn to 2 Timothy 4... Starting with chapter 4, starting, uh, 2 Timothy 4, I'm sorry, sorry, 
starting with uh, verse 1. Again, almost 2,000 years ago, uh, Paul tells this to Timothy, but we still see it today, and we see a lot of the fulfillments today. Paul says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, I charge you, very strong words, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come. See, you've got to get your foundation first, because here's where the storms come in. Verse 3. For the time will come, not might come, but will come, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Paul sets the foundation first. Get your foundation. Because the storms are coming. The wind's going to come. The storms are going to come. The flood is going to come. Jesus said it himself. And if your foundation is in sand, your house is going to topple. If your foundation is on the rock, you will withstand those storms. Pretty heavy stuff. Verse 3. You tell I get excited about this. It's very passionate. Verse 3. So what happens is they take this route pretty much due south from Syrian Antioch to uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and they pass through some areas where they give the gospel with great results. Now, what you find is, no doubt, Paul and Barnabas, you ever hear something that irritates you, and maybe you've got to meet with a person, or you've got to do something, and you get those butterflies, and you anticipate the meeting, or you anticipate maybe it's something in school, maybe it's a relative, whatever it is, and you're kind of tunnel vision focused on that meeting or that, that uh, event. And this is no doubt, if, if I knew Paul, I mean, I don't know him personally, but from, from the Word, he was so passionate to defend the Word of God and good doctrine that he probably all he could think about was going down there, this long trip, and settling this matter. But in between, he goes through Phoenicia and Samaria and all these areas, and he's got great results. Even with the focus that he had, he still didn't forget who he was. And that's got to be with us, too. We do have focuses in our lives. Could be family, could be health, could be financial but in the meantime, we are Christians. In the meantime, we do the work of an evangelist. Even if it's not with our tongue, it's with our actions. Let's never forget who we are in Christ. And verse 5, this group, most of you who have studied the Bible for a while know who the Pharisees were. For those of you who don't, the Pharisees were legalists. They tried to be righteous through the keeping of the law, which is impossible. The Bible tells us. When we look at the law... Do not steal, do not uh, lie, do not murder, do not do all these things, even if, we're not, even if we say that we're keeping them outwardly in our hearts. If we think bad about another person, Jesus said, you're, you're committing sin in your heart with your thought life. So it's impossible to follow the law to the T. And the Bible says that if one law is broken, you're in sin. You're separated from God eternally, but there's hope. So this pretending to, to follow the law from these Pharisees, from these legalists, led to hypocrisy, because it, it, it has to. If I sit here and tell you I lead a perfect life and I don't sin, and I just propagate that enough, well, obviously I am sinning. I do sin in my life. And what happens is I've become a hypocrite, but I put on a good facade for all you here. So I wouldn't say I never sin. It's ridiculous. And these people did. They did, had that pretentiousness, and it led to hypocrisy. But even though they became Christians, a lot of them became Christians. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. 
they still kept a lot of their pet doctrines. And the legalism was one of their pet doctrines. You have to be saved by the law. And we can see that sometimes with Christians today. They get saved. They don't get rid of their leanings. They don't get rid of their idols. It's still in their hearts. And over time, it surfaces. They don't get rid of all the junk. They don't completely let Christ clean their hearts out of all that junk that they have inside. And if we're honest with ourselves, all of us, at one point or another, have succumbed to pride. And it manifests itself in a lot of ways. And Christians can have varied opinions on various subjects, and sometimes their opinions can be just completely contrascriptural. This is what the Bible says, but I want to believe this. It's my leaning. It's my idol. And this is what the Pharisees did. I believe in Jesus. I'm saved. But they held on to that legalism. And in Galatians 2, which I won't turn to, it seems that Paul explains to the Galatians this particular subject, if you want to reference it later. So the question is, what is legalism? What is legalism? Legalism is, you're saved, but you must do this. This is what you have to do. Christ dying was good, but it wasn't completely effective for you to be saved. Do this. Let me add some things onto that foundation, and it, it makes a false house. This leads me to the Bible plus theories, and let me explain that. Whether it's Islam, or Judaism, or Catholicism, non-denominationalism, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, etc., all of those groups that I just mentioned use the Bible in some form. Now, some use a lot less, some use more. Okay, but they all use that as in some form. And it depends on who we're talking about. But most of them add, even among evangelicalism, there's an addition in some ways, in some places, to the scripture. The Bible plus theories, as the Pharisees did. Salvation plus this. If it could be Mormonism, the Bible plus the Book of Mormons, the readings of the Apostles and Prophets, the, uh, the Pearl of Great Price, you know, all that kind of stuff. If it's Islam, it's the Bible plus the Koran. If it's Jehovah Witness, it's the Bible plus the Watchtower. And, and on and on and on it goes. Jesus' sacrifice plus. Whenever you add something to Jesus' sacrifice, you take away from Jesus' sacrifice. That's just what you're, you're nullifying it. In this instance, it was Jesus' sacrifice plus the law. Again, turn back to Galatians 3, starting with verse 1. Galatians 3, verse 1. Speaking to the Galatians again, Paul says, O foolish Galatians. So what these Galatians did is they allowed these heretics to come in and almost talk them into, after the freedom that they received, to try to start piling things back onto that freedom. Again, nullifying that freedom, nullifying that grace. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? That's a good point. The Holy Spirit, which indwells all believers, it's his seal of approval, it's his seal of protection that all believers contain. A part of God actually resides in you. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Right? Are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? That is foolish. How could you, something that's priceless, something that you can't earn, something that you can't buy, you know, it's the most priceless thing in the world, God's seal of his approval, his Holy Spirit inside of you. How can you be made perfect by earthly things, by our own works, when God has given us the Holy Spirit? 
Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the nations by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then whose, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Now Abraham made a lot of mistakes and the Jewish people revere Abraham as their great patriarch, the founder of the Jewish faith. But even Abraham was not justified by his works because a lot of times God told him to do something and he disobeyed. It was very often. So Abraham, the Bible says, was imputed righteousness to him, not because of what he did, but because of his faith. Okay, that's important. Verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And he gets that right out of the Torah, the heart of the Jewish scriptures in Deuteronomy 27. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which were written in the book of the law to do them. You break one law and you're out. You're separated from God. So if we want to try to justify ourselves by the law, by keeping things and doing things and observing things, we're messed up because one one mess up and it's over for us. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. The just shall live by faith quoting the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Christ, this is the good part of it. I don't want to give you the bad news without giving you the good news. You've all sinned. I've sinned. We're all sinners here. We're hopeless. We're eternally separated from God. But the good news is that Jesus took the curse of our sins, took the curse of the law, and he nailed it to a tree 2,000 years ago so that we could have that freedom, we could have that grace, um, and, and we're justified. That the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And he pretty much hammers it home here. There's really no wiggle room in what Paul is saying. Interesting story, um, long time ago, many years back, my mom got involved in a Bible study and they said, oh, we're just Christians. They didn't reveal who they were at the end. It seemed to be, I guess, pretty good. She would tell me about it. And this was early on in her walk. And at the end, they said, well, we're Seventh-day Adventists. I didn't really know anything about them. So they would come over and I would come and I would listen. Now, she was a nurse and I was a police officer. And we both worked on Saturday because we had to. But they said, and they have this whole theology, they said as true Christians, when the Lord comes back, you can't be working on Saturday. If you work on Saturday, you're damned. You can't be redeemed. You can't be saved. And again, they have a whole theology around it that I don't want to get into. But they were adding additional burdens. They wanted to put more burdens on us than the Bible said. Well, Paul even says in one part of the scripture, Oh, foolish Galatians, you observe new moons and Sabbaths. I fear for you. This is, this is terrible. Why are you going back to these beggarly elements of the law? So, extra burdens to carry. Traditions, maybe church rules, trendy Christian ideas. Well, let me read to you what Jesus says about what type of burden we should be carrying. Only three verses. Matthew 11, 
28 through 30. From Jesus' own, own words, Matthew 11, starting with verse 28. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Wow. You just got to absorb that. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden. I'm going to give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The yoke was something that it looked like an upside-down W, uh, depending on how many animals, team of animals, usually it'd be two animals, and it was wooden. And it would go over their shoulders and it would cross in, in the bottom and, and yoke them together. It would join the animals together and they would plow the field. And that was their burden. These animals were beasts of burden. They had to plow the field. That was their job. So Jesus is saying, his yoke is really not a yoke, if you think about it. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is really not a yoke at all. With my yoke, you will find rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That should be freeing. I would just say this to you. I don't know what background any of you, well, some of you I know backgrounds you come from, but if it's not in Scripture, don't worry about it. It's not a burden. Grace is not a burden. Now, the contrast to the burden is grace. In the dictionary, grace is unmerited love and favor of God towards mankind. And honestly, it's something we really don't deserve. Who here can really raise their hand and say, I deserve to be saved? If I was to stand before God, I would tell him, look at my life. I'm pretty perfect. Let me in. If you do that, don't do it next to me because I don't want to get struck by the bolt. Because <laughs> I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I, you know. But the point is, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which I, I kind of alluded to before, Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. By grace we have been saved, okay, through faith. When we believe that grace is, you know, that, that faith is a conduit to receive the showers of blessing of the grace that we, we start to receive through that conduit of faith. It just reminds me of, um, you know, almost like tapping into a storehouse of treasure. And it's, it's like a chute, and it just, comes, it just comes flowing down into you. It's by your faith you've been saved, or by grace you've been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. Um, 1 John 5 tells us, and this is the testimony God has given us the gift of eternal life. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. Somebody can't give it to you. I can't get it, catch it from somebody like a cold. It's a gift. It says, he who, has the son of life, he who has the Son of God has eternal life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life. But it is a gift, and you receive it through believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now, there's one caveat to this that I just want to, one verse in Jude Jude only has one chapter, verse 4. Jude says this, and this is good, to hit this grace from all angles, to understand really what grace is. And Jude says this, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not antinomians antinomianists and that's just a big word a theological term which means that we just we don't follow the law at all it's grace 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 we can do whatever we want 
That's not what we believe. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not a license to do whatever we want and get away with it. If we think we can sin and behave any way we want, we don't understand grace. Sin is rarely called out anymore. It's a dirty word even in the church. People don't want to hear that they're in sin or they've sinned. They don't like it. But the fact is we do sin. We sin every day. Under the umbrella of God's people, sometimes we can be the worst violators as we should know better. I think what we have to realize is it, we have forgiveness. Jesus died on the cross. So the fact that Jesus died on the cross for all the sins that we've committed, then when we, we look at Jesus Christ and the sacrifice he made, it's not that we're under the yoke of the law, don't steal, don't talk about people, don't do all that. It's that we should appreciate what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and then we should want to sin less. And through the power of the Holy Spirit and the transforming power of the word, we should change day by day. Every year we should look back and say, you know what, I am a little bit different. You know, you want to grow in Christ. Yes, we're freed from the bondage of the law. Yes, if we're in Christ, we don't have to worry about going to hell. We commit sins, we confess those sins, and, and we're forgiven. But we should appreciate the sacrifice that Jesus made, and we should want to grow in Christ. Not just Some people have the attitude, it's a bizarre attitude to me. I'm saved, that's good enough, I'm getting into heaven. <laughs> and that's where their walk ends. Ten years later, 15 years, there's no change. And a lot of those people fall back into the world because they're lazy in their faith. We should want to grow in Christ and, and when we really understand the concept of grace. Verse 6, chapter, Acts chapter 15, verse 6. So the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples to which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? There's that word yoke again. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the manner as the same manner as they. And all the multitudes kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So here's Peter's simple message in four points. Number one, Peter says, basically, and I'm paraphrasing, I was the biggest flag waver for the law and for you know, Mosaic law and Judaism. That was me. But God shows no partiality, and he pushed that message through me via Cornelius and his family. If you remember in Acts chapter 10 that we covered, God led Peter to a Gentile, a Roman soldier, and his family, which would have been unheard of for a devout Jew. But God said, listen, go to that household and preach the gospel to them. I want them, you know, they're, they're desiring to seek me, and I want them to be saved. Go do it. That's the first point. The second point Peter makes is our ancestors couldn't keep Mosaic law, including Moses himself. And that's why we need a savior. So why would you put a yoke, the yoke of keeping the law on the Gentiles when not even us Jews could keep that yoke? We couldn't do it. So why do you want to put that yoke that we threw off for Jesus's yoke, that heavy yoke, put it on these people? It doesn't make any sense. Three, while delivering God's message to the Gentiles, God gave the Holy Spirit to them. It reinforces that God was pleased with the Gentiles receiving salvation. Otherwise, God wouldn't have given the Holy Spirit. 
when Peter went to the Gentiles, it was a great work of the Holy Spirit. It was obvious. They were sealed with the Holy Spirit. No doubt that it was, there was works going on. And God wouldn't have done that. God doesn't capitulate to man. I can't command God right now. God, I'm a pastor. Show them something really neat. Do a trick. He's not going to capitulate to me. If God does a great work, it's because he's pleased with that work, not because we pushed him into it. We manipulated him. It doesn't work like that. The fourth point, most importantly, is it's all about grace, guys. After God showed us we couldn't keep the law, he blessed us with this concept of grace. Really, it was a way, of, a way out from keeping the law through Jesus Christ. The law was in effect for thousands of years, and God's people, generations after generations, century after millennia, they couldn't keep the law. They all fell short. And then God finally gave them the concept of grace, helped them to understand grace, and he's saying, this is great, this grace stuff. So why should we have grace and they don't get the grace? It doesn't make sense. So what you have is miracles and the works of the Holy Spirit taking place in preaching to the Gentiles. And the bottom line is great things happen when you do things that are pleasing to God. Even in my short time here as a pastor, two plus years, I've seen marriages grow. I've seen normally shy people doing open, powerful ministry. God is great. I've seen people admitted from very sinful uh, past and lifestyles, being freed from those lifestyles through grace, through Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior, and now joyfully serving the Lord. You are changing as the Word of God is changing you, as the Holy Spirit is changing you. And there's going to be people that, that don't finish the race. There's going to be people that drop out. We see that all the time. But that's not what we should be focusing on. We should be focusing on those of us who are still in the race. We're arm in arm, locked together, running that race, running that race to win. My wife told me that in her particular Bible study, uh, it's a small group, that two women have brought out friends and neighbors, and it's just amazing. Um, neighbors, friends, coworkers, I see it all the time, and I, I say this multiple times. We don't do advertising here at this church, but people are coming in. Your neighbors are coming in, your coworkers, your friends, because they're seeing a change in you, and they're saying, hey, where do you go to get the word? You know, what, what is it that you're into? I'm interested. God is working in you. The Holy Spirit, the word, it's working in you. Even our year-end report, when I did the year-end report a week ago, two weeks ago, I started putting together all the things we did as a church and just out of, off the top of my head, and I'm like, boy, wow, there's a lot of really neat things happening here. There's a couple that comes to this fellowship that has like an informal um, they open up their house to the teens in the neighborhood. And every time they come into church, there's a whole bunch of teens with them that are just sitting here listening to the word. I mean, it's just exciting to see what's going on. Great reports from the missions field. If I'm going too fast, somebody go like this, you know, if you're taking notes. Slow down, John. Don't go too fast. But um, it's just pretty exciting. And that's what does it for me. What does it for me is seeing the exciting works and the miracles of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13. And after that, they had become silent. James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, Simon Peter, has declared how God at, the, at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And I'm going to say quote here because he's um, reading from the book of Amos in the Old Testament. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will re rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things, end quote. Known to God from eternity are his works, all his works. 
Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So Peter was up, now James is up, okay, speaking. Again, James uses, in verse 16 and 17, the Old Testament. He uses Amos 9, 11 through 12 to make his case. Now, this is a small sample in Amos of Gentile inclusion in the Old Testament. For those first century Jews who had an issue with the Gentiles coming in, all they had to do was go back into their Old Testament and look at the prophecies of many of the prophets who prophesied, yeah, the Gentiles are going to come in. Now, a lot of the Jewish people were probably scratching their heads saying, I don't know this is how this is going to happen, but isn't that the beauty of God? God makes these unbelievable claims, incredible claims, and says, watch what I do. And we kind of scratch our heads and go, no, I guess we'll watch what he does. Because that's how incredible God is. And in the book of Acts here, these godly men often use the word of God, or all the time use the word of God to make their case. As we've been through the book of Acts, how many Old Testament books have we gone through? Many, many Old Testament books. And the question is, what else is there to use to make your case but the word of God? Right? If I'm debating or correcting or in any way engaging someone, I always do well when I work within God's precepts. In my mind, when I, and in, in some instances where I've, okay, God, I, I kind of got it from here and I try to do it in my own strength, I don't do so well. And that's just the way it is. You know, the Word of God has power. Verse 16 and 17, again, going back to Amos, two points that I want to um, uh, focus on that, that Amos makes. He says, He talks about rebuilding the tabernacle of David so the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Now, the everlasting Davidic Davidic covenant that we talked about some weeks back seemed to be doomed after the kingdom split and the abrogation of the monarchy. And what that just basically means is that King David had a throne and according to the the prophecies, his throne, his monarchy was going to reign forever. Now, after David's son Solomon, uh, the kingdom split. Okay, so now Israel is split into two kingdoms. Well, that's a problem for the monarchy. After that, the Babylonians came and destroyed pretty much Israel, the temple, and the whole system of worship, and all the kings were deported or killed, and that was the end of all the kings. So then, you, again, you scratch your head and say, Lord, how could this be fulfilled? You know, the, the monarchy's been cut off. But through Christ, the monarchy has been reinstated again. Jesus is, is the eternal king, and he actually will come back to reign in glory uh, on the earth. And the Gentiles coming in, if you look at this, were part of that fulfillment. Now, it's, it's possible, perhaps, that the Christian Jews at the time, and understandably so, thought that bringing in the Gentiles, you've got you to look at the mindset of what's going on here in this first century. This, to the Jewish people, is very foreign to have these Gentiles coming in. And a lot of times, Gentiles is synonymous with pagans, because the Gentiles were heathen people. They had just lascivious practices. They were idolaters. They were bizarre people. And the Jews would be like, well, how could these people come into the fold? It doesn't make any sense. And isn't the conquering Messiah fulfillment that he's going to conquer the Gentiles? And again, that's the only way they could fathom this. But they were right in believing that Jesus would, would suffer as a suffering servant, but they were wrong in, in wondering who was going to be conquered in the future, thinking it was just the Gentiles. No longer Jews and Gentiles were in separate categories. Now it would be believers and disbelievers. Okay, as we see in verse 17, it says, Even all the Gentiles who were called by my name. 
Okay, so they're making their case here. They're making their point. Verse 20. So this is what they come up with in a nutshell. They decide, what are we going to impose upon these Gentile brethren? There's, there's friction between the, the hardline Jewish people who are into the law. There's, there's issues with the Gentiles. Maybe they're still bringing some of that, that wanton lifestyle in with them. How do we harmonize them in the body of Christ? So they come up with kind of three main instructions taken from the entire law for the Gentiles to follow. And this would be common sense anyway. Number one, tell the Gentiles to come into faith. They, ha- they can't be polluted by idols. Well, that makes sense because God will have no other gods before him. You know, you, you can't worship God and worship idols at the same time. It was very common in those days, and again, you have to understand a little bit of the culture, for people, especially the Gentiles, to sacrifice mainly food in pagan temples. They would go into a pagan temple, they would butcher their meat, they would offer the meat before some statue, and uh, they would say, we offer this to you, Baal, or whatever, and then they would take it home and cook it. Now, this was a problem. 1 Corinthians 8, uh, Paul explains this a little bit in Principles of Christian Liberty. If I'm a Christian, and I see somebody do that, and they offer a, a piece of chicken, right? I'm really hungry. And they offer some chicken to some, some idol. I could eat that chicken, because that idol doesn't exist, you know? I, I just, I'm so strong in my faith that a piece of chicken wouldn't stumble me. But some weaker Christians might look at that and, and be really taken aback, and it might really hurt their faith. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, if, if it means I never eat meat again so that another lesser brother doesn't stumble, I won't eat meat again. But the point he's trying to make is that, especially for the, the, the lesser brothers, listen, don't eat anything that's polluted by idols. Stay away from that stuff. Second point, sexual immorality. Again, that's another common sense. These are just very common sense. We talked about antinomianism. This was also common to the Gentile world. The Gentiles would have houses of prostitution. And a lot of those houses of prostitution would have a particular idol assigned to that house of prostitution, whether it be Aphrodite or Venus or any of the the so-called goddesses of love or sexuality. So he's saying, listen, Stay away from sexual immorality. You know, be a good Christian. You know, obviously be faithful to your wife and don't be doing these things, even if you're single. And the third thing is, these go together. Stay away from things strangled and from blood. And they're one and the same. There was a difference in the way the Jews butchered their meat and the way the Gentiles butchered their meat. Actually, I read this book called The Maker's Diet, and he talks about the kosher butchering process, and it's actually better for you health-wise. But what the Gentiles would do is they would, I guess, take a ligature and they would strangle the animal and kill it, and then they would butcher it. What that would do is that would, first of all, cause fear in the animal, and they would get an adrenaline rush, most likely. But it would keep the blood in the animal. So they, and the Gentiles also had a practice of drinking blood. It was okay. This is what they did, according to them. But the Jews, what they would do is they would uh, take a very sharp knife, and they would slit the animal's throat and do it in a very humane way. The animal didn't even know it was happening because they really didn't feel it if the knife was sharp enough. And all the blood would be drained out, and that's the way they would eat the meat. Just kind of going to today a little bit, they found studies that said that uh, the animals that are uh, butchered through use of a bolt or any kind of other thing other than a kosher way causes fear in the animal. They re- release adrenaline, and then you eat that meat tainted with the adrenaline. So kosher meat is actually better for you. But anyway, the point is that they didn't want the Gentiles to be drinking blood. Stay away from these practices. Go buy kosher. Leviticus 17, 10 through 11. Two points, two verses. Right deep in the heart of the Torah, in the Jewish law, two verses here. 
It says, And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement to you for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. It's kind of neat. It, it is true. I mean, now that we, you know, 2,000 years of several thousand years of bioscience, the life of the flesh is in the blood. If you have a, a part of your body or you have a skin tag or something and you tie a piece of dental floss around it and it cuts off the blood supply, it falls off. If you, you know, as a kid, you put the rubber bands around your fingers, maybe I'm the only one who did it, and your finger starts to die, you know what I'm saying? You keep it there long enough, your finger's going to fall off. But the life of the flesh is in the blood, and blood is a healer. You know, when you, a lot of times heat, you know, the, the, it opens up the blood vessels, gets the blood in there, and the nutrients heal your tissues. But God was looking at something a little bit differently. You know, I like to study anatomy and physiology. But he's saying the life of the, blood, the, life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you, upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, starting with the blood sacrifice from Abel. Remember Cain and Abel. Abel had a, a good sacrifice. It was a blood sacrifice. Cain had you know, some you know, things he picked up from the garden, and God said, I don't accept that. Uh, you go from that, Abel, to the tabernacle. The tabernacle had the institution of the, the, the lambs and the you know, sacrificial lambs, sacrifice them, blood sacrifice, uh, to the Passover. You know, the innocent lamb was slaughtered and, and the, the blood put on the doorposts and, uh, you know, the, the, the angel of death would pass over the house and, and the people wouldn't die. To the Christ, Jesus fulfilled all those blood sacrifices. He shed his precious blood for the remission of our sins. And it was only through Jesus' shedding of his blood that we could have eternal life. So the, the Christians were very serious about the whole drinking of blood thing. It, it could be very stumbling it goes against God's law and stay away from it. So these are basically the three rules that uh, they impose, so to speak, or the four rules on the, uh, the non-Jewish brothers. The only way to have sins forgiven is the shedding of the blood, and it wasn't to be regarded as a common thing. Now again, these were the bare-bones rules, so to speak, for harmony between the Gentile and the Jewish brothers. Now, I think what, look, there's a lot of doctrine in here and, uh, you know, a lot of heavy stuff that if, you know, maybe you're not familiar with the Bible, you may have to go over again, but it's good. You should understand the message of grace. If there's anything I want you to understand today, it's the message of grace. Even that word sounds nice, doesn't it? Grace. It's just a nice word, and there's a good meaning behind it. But with the Jews, here's grace. Hey, guys, here's the law, Ten Commandments. Go ahead. I can't keep this. Can you keep this? No, I can't keep this. Nobody can keep the law. This is not good. Okay, here's grace. You don't have to keep the law. Jesus died. He took the curse of the law. He took your sins upon him. You have grace. Isn't that great? Feel good? Yeah, it really does feel good. I'm saved. To the Gentiles, you guys are idol worshipers, filthy people, drinking blood, sexual whatever. Hey, there's grace for you too. Yeah, you were outcast for a while. Yeah, um, you guys did a lot of bad things, but... Jesus died for your sins. Isn't that great? You have grace. You have to understand grace. It's beautiful. I'm happy that I'm saved by grace. What have you been told? Any of you today, what have you been told? What do you feel that you have to do to earn God's love? God already loves you. God already put the olive branch out. God already said in his word that while you were still ungodly and doing awful things, he sent his son to die for your sins. So what do you think that you have to do? What do you think you have to be? Nothing. Do you have to give money? Do you have to sign up to serve? Otherwise, you're not a good Christian. 
Do you have to get into some type of forced church membership where the church you know, shepherds you and they micromanage everything you do, including your finances? No. Or, according to this, do you think you have to get circumcised as an adult? Well, I got new, good news for you adult men. We don't do that here, okay? So you're off the hook. But you don't have to do any of those things. We don't want any of that. Hopefully we are here, and hopefully every church is here, as an unobstructed conduit for you to get to God. Nothing more, nothing less. Again, my picture is that big shoot. You know, God's storehouse treasures, you know, just love, grace, and I'm kind of here struggling. And I believe, and that shoot goes up to heaven, and it just opens up the storehouse, and all that stuff comes flowing down into me. Your, your shoot is faith. When you believe, you get all of God's grace. I believe that there's someone here today, whether listening on the CD or on the website, or somebody in this very room today, that you're just learning about God and this applies to you. I believe this is a timely message. When I was studying it, I just couldn't get away from that. There's no coincidence that you are hearing this message today. Don't let an opportunity for everlasting life slip away from you. It's here for the taking. All you have to do is ask. Ask God. If the Lord is calling you to grace, you come to him. Let's pray.